Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions' lonely hillside world headquarters overlooking the vast San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. Though we have a couple of shows recorded as of this podcast, we've considered taking a bit of a hiatus while the world percolates through this virus that has affected each and every one of us. However, my friend Josh Olson, screenwriter of David Cronenberg's The History of Violence, and co-host with Joe Dante of the indispensable Movies That Made Me podcast, convinced me that we serve a need, that it's important that we soldier on and keep doing what we do. It's important, especially in times of crisis, to carry on if we are able, to bring people together, to keep the forum fresh and contemporary, to continue to bring you new shows and continue the conversation. So though this episode was recorded before all hell broke loose, we will continue to conduct conversations with the most interesting voices in the horror genre, but by Skype rather than face-to-face. We hope to be able to keep up the deep, intimate nature of our chats with a screen between us, and with luck, listeners won't even notice. The last trip I took out of town, just before the coronavirus led to massive shutdowns, was to Pensacola, Florida for the Pensacon Convention. It was there that I met the legendary actor David Warner, and we were able to do our podcast with a small but eager audience. For the unfamiliar, Warner is the consummate character actor, though he began in the 60s as a charming leading man in movies like Tom Jones and Morgan. Though he has not been as active in the last two years as he has in the preceding five decades or so, you'd know him if you saw him. A brilliant and flexible actor, his career turned toward brilliant baddies with a wicked sense of humor, autocratic aristocrats, and wonderfully theatrical daddies and uncles. He's the master of the wonderful and the wicked, and his instantly recognizable face can barely contain the clockwork brilliance of both good and evil. Two of my favorites of his literally hundreds of performances are as Jack the Ripper in the fantastic Time After Time and the evil genius of Time Bandits. If you've ever watched a movie or a TV show, you know him instantly. 
in Star Trek on the big and small screens, in Tron, Wild at Heart, Doctor Who, The Alienist, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a vast cornucopia of beautiful performances running the gamut of comedy, horror, science fiction, and the deepest of dramas. It was an honor to meet and chat with David Warner, and we'll share that conversation right after this. It's a little crazy out there right now, so Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts, like this one. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the first 15 issues of the original run of Fangoria magazine, and counting. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic is now available to watch on Shudder. And by the way... So is Nightmare Cinema. I'm Mick Garris, and live from Pensacon in Pensacola, Florida, this is Postmortem. And our guest, David Warner. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here. Page after page of credits of your film and television work. Um, it, did it all start at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts? Are you talking about acting? As so, far as, as a performer, yeah? Well, I mean, uh, um, I, I was in, the only thing I could do at school, I went to many schools. I couldn't do athletics, and I wasn't an academic. I could do nothing. And uh, one teacher, which is often the story of people like me, uh, could put me in the school play at school. A couple of Shakespeare's. I played Lady Macbeth. Oh my! I played Shylock. I was 16, 15, and that kept me off the streets basically. But you were going to mention, I mean, the childhood business, which we won't go into much, was very messy, and I needed to get out the house. I see. So I, instead of joining a gang, and I could, mm. I, I not, I didn't couldn't play sports, so I didn't join a team. Uh, I went to the Amateur Dramatics uh, Society and painted scenery and, you know, did stuff there. Was Just your family artistic as, no, when no, you were a no, child? No, 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 no. Nothing artistic in either of them. You were the first one to move into that? Uh, yes, there was no theatre background hmm. at all with my, my parents. Was theatre your first love, or did you no, hope for film? No, not necessarily a love. Yeah? It was something I could, found out I could do. <laughs> and that's what I did. Right. Rather than being a driven, I have to be this, I have to play Hamlet, I have to do that. I just felt it got me out of the house into a, a, an environment with some comrades in theatre and going through what you do when, when things go wrong and all that. And gave me a sort of identity. Well, probably the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts is probably the most prestigious school of its kind. Well, it could be, yes. I mean, uh, uh, that would be debatable to all the students who went to the other schools. Right, well... But, I mean, no, but, but I, I, I mean... Highly I, regarded. It's highly, yes, it's highly regarded. But, I mean, uh, I, I, I decided 
I was when I was in amateur dramatics and to get out of the house, I was also holding down a day job. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't pass any examinations at school, any of the basic exams. So I left school at 17, took a job selling newspapers in a in a shop, did my amateur dramatics, and then. You mentioned the Royal Academy, but I got there by obviously um, applying and auditioning. Right. And I remember that um, in order to try and get myself up to kind of speed with 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 the audition uh, pieces, a piece of Shakespeare, a piece of whatever, I took a drama coach locally, and I did it. I travelled just twenty miles to do it. And then on the day I was leaving to go to the Royal Academy audition, a letter arrived, and my father, who was a charming man but a bit insensitive, <laughs> got this letter, and it turned out that it was from the drama coach. And the drama coach was actually saying to my father, Dear Mr. Warner, I believe David is going to be taking his audition. I don't think he's going to pass. Oh, nice. <laughs> and my dear father read the letter to me just as I was leaving the house to get on the train to go for the audition. Sweet man. <laughs> no, he was a sweet man, yes. <laughs> but, but uh, he, didn't, he, he didn't quite know how to deal with it. He could have kept it quiet, but he told me. Anyway, I, I did the audition. I got in. So and was it Shakespeare primarily that you used for your audition? Uh, I, a bit of Shakespeare, yes, but uh, and a, something else. I can't remember. Was classical theatre your, your biggest interest or no, contemporary? No, well, I lived near Stratford-on-Avon. Well, that's... 20 miles away, so I used to go to the theatre, but I didn't understand a word they were talking. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really didn't. Yeah. Um, because, as I say, I had no education. Um, and so, you know, I eventually did play some Shakespeare. You may know that. Yes, I do. And, uh, and um, around about at that, that time. And if, if people think that if you play Hamlet, which I was fortunate enough to do, and other Shakespeare parts, that you are suddenly a Shakespeare scholar. <laughs> but I'm not. Oh, I see. Um, I just learn the lines and don't bump into the furniture. Is what <laughs> Working actor. And you do your best. Yes, 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 exactly. Well, tell me about the transition into film. Tom Jones was a pretty auspicious film in 1963. Uh, yes, well, transition into film. I have to say that two things, because the film happened... Uh, let me try and... Yes, you're taking me way back. What is it, nearly 70 years? <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's um, uh, The transition... I, play, I, I was a film extra uh -huh. before my first appearance uh, uh, in front of a camera was, was a film extra. What was of, the film? Oh, that's something that you would never have heard of. Okay. I haven't heard of since. <laughs> I'll trust you on Just, that. No, 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 it's fine. Yeah. It was in front of a camera. And... At the same time, I was playing small parts in theatre in London. And I remember the, the, uh, the one experimental play in a tiny theatre in the centre of London, but was run by the Royal Shakespeare Company, and they were doing experimental, uncommercial plays. I and I had seven lines in that um, uncommercial play. <laughs> Only seven lines, big cast. And as a result of the seven lines... I was invited to audition for the Royal Shakespeare Company mm. in their my main company. And I auditioned three or four times. And I got in and played, was offered the part of King Henry VI, which is a leading role in the big history plays. Now, you asked me a specific question. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, so I did the tiny little parts. But another tiny part I did was Snout the Tinker in Midsummer Night's Dream, 
which was being directed by a really a film director called Tony Richardson. Right, the famous Tony Richardson. Now, I was in this film called Tom Jones, and I don't know how many of the people really know that film, because we can talk about stuff that people don't know. I'm betting some of them do, and I do, so I'm interested. Okay, of course, it's your show, isn't it? Yeah, so as a result of being playing this small but nice part in Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Tony Richardson, mm. he was at the same time casting this film, Tom Jones, with yeah. Albert Finney playing the lead. And um, I know a lot of actors of my age group was offered the part of Bliffill, who was a, a good character, a good part. But they turned it down. It wasn't mm. good enough for them. Nice. came to me, and I was offered it. And it was good enough for you. It was good enough for me, <laughs> after, you know, after seven lines, playing tiny parts, suddenly, right. you know, you get offered a big part. So, yes, the transition was, by doing theatre, small parts, I suddenly found myself in a, in a film. I won the Academy Awards as Best Picture of the Year in 19-something or other. And so, from being in London on the stage, suddenly you're in an international sensation. The film was big around the world. It was a, a big around the world. It won the, I wasn't necessarily a sensation. But I was <laughs> well, in the a film sens- certainly but Yes, I was yeah. in a sensational film. Right, that time. everyone saw you around the world. Uh, yes, than just but, on- but unfortunately, yeah. uh, the part was kind of, he was nasty and mm-hmm. ugly. I, I'll tell you a tiny story about that. Please. I, well, I was just, uh, this part of, of Albert Finney was good looking and, you know, handsome and bronzed and the hero. And the character that I eventually got was his half-brother, the ugly one. <laughs> who, you know, and, and Susanna York, this beautiful actress, oh, falls yes. in love with Tom. But with him, and, uh, but I am supposed to be betrothed to her, and I repulse her, and she goes, eh, and all that. She says, oh, uh, what a horrible, all that kind of stuff. So it's not actually a romantic leading part. Right, yes. So, you know, but... When but Tony, a pivotal part. A good part, yes. But when, when um, Tony Richardson said, he described what the part was before I read the script, he said, well, Albert Finney's gorgeous and lovely and, and you're supposed to be ugly and nobody likes you and all that kind of stuff. Blah, blah, blah. I got the part. So I thought, I wonder what they're going to make me look like. <laughs> so I go to the makeup trailer on my very first day. They wouldn't know who I am, so I knock on the door. And um, I said, hello, my name's David Warner. And I'm playing, and I'm thinking, what are they going to do and make me? Yeah. I'm David Warren, I'm playing Bliffill, and I've come for makeup. And they, they said, David Warren, and they looked at their list because it was the first day. David Warren, no makeup. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, yeah, that, so if you ever see this film or a bit of it, I've got spots and everything, they didn't bother to come. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't a romantic. You know, it wasn't a romantic thing, but it was a wonderful part in a, in a fun film. It's a great part in a movie, so uh, theatre and film are very different in many ways. Uh, tell me about your approach and what you learned uh, in a pivotal part in a feature film after so much theatre. Well, no, I hadn't done a lot of theatre. Oh, okay. I mean, I played those tiny parts. Right, I right. mean, I had auditioned... Uh, I had auditioned, and then I did the film, and then I got the part at Stratford. I see. So, so I was still a small part, you know, not bit part, but right. small parts, and you know, right. you, you're not as important as the lead, so you're just there. How was your process different on stage and on uh, on film? No, I, I really don't have a deep process. Right. I don't have a process at all. Uh, but you're I, not I, playing to the proscenium, you're playing to a camera that's in your face. Oh, you so. mean, are you talking about the, well, obviously the, the difference, difference as between, a performer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, 
my in, I'm an instinctive actor, so my instinct told me, don't shout to the gallery <laughs> when you're on, you know, when the camera's there. I mean, that was an instinctive Fair decision enough. rather than any kind of process, <laughs> you know. Well, after that, uh, where I first really became familiar with you as an actor was in Morgan. You're suddenly carrying an entire film on your own, and you're charming and delightful, and it's romantic in a way, and eccentric. Tell me a little bit about uh, that experience. Well, uh, I'd done a bit, by then I'd done a bit of theater, and they, they, the, the film called Morgan, which I don't know, again, how many people have seen, but, but we'll talk about it. <laughs> yes. Um, I, when I just left drama school, uh, we only had two TV channels, and but the BBC at that time, you know, did some wonderful plays, and, the, and uh, I was 16 or 17, and this play called Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, with a wonderful actor who nobody knows now called Ian Hendry, oh, playing yeah. Morgan. And I thought, well, here I am, I'm, I'm starting to want to be an actor, and the part's been done. You know, it's been played, this part. Well, I'm not, you sort of, what am I going to do? I got very depressed, it was so wonderful. And uh, so about five years later, they decided to make a movie of it, and um, I... I, I Having done the small parts again, uh, they saw me um, in, a, in a play and asked me to um, go and do a screen test for the part, the leading role, and, um, and, and I got it. There's not much really to say about that, <laughs> okay. I, I got it. All I'll say is one of the last black and white pictures. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, in the 60s in, in, in London. Well, your longevity as an actor only can happen to someone who can be as versatile as you have been, playing drama, playing comedy, uh, playing good guys. You were a charming young man, and suddenly you started playing heavies and the like. Um, my favorite may be Time After Time. I would love to hear about your experience of Jack the Ripper. Just well, a masterpiece you. film. I think it's a wonderful film. For I mean, it was just... Yes, I mean, I was, I'd done a couple of films by then. That, oh, yeah. Uh, that, that I'd, I think I'd done The Omen by then. Yes, um, The Omen. But, no, no, no. <laughs> I'll do that if you don't mind. <laughs> no, no, what I'm trying, no, I'm trying to just sort of put it in its time frame. Right, right. I mean, The I've Omen a, was 76. Y y yes, yes, and, and, and around 78. Time after time yeah, was 78. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, with... with, with um, um, Nick Meyer was a wonderful director. Right. I got the script, and then my old friend Malcolm McDowell, who who we, was at Stratford playing tiny parts. When I played Hamlet, which I did, um, <laughs> Malcolm had one line. <laughs> and he really got pissed off with that, so he left the company and went to Hollywood. You know, did Clockwork Orange and became a star. He'll so, show you. <laughs> but, yeah. Yes, exactly. So it was lovely to have the opportunity of working with him. Anyway, the director and the producer came to see me and said, we'd, and I read the script and I loved it, of course. And, um, and so they, they came to see me at the, the hotel in, in Los Angeles and said, we want you to do this. But Warner Brothers are really a little bit hesitant really? of using you. Mm. Hold on, folks. <laughs> Who did they want to play the part? Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers. Mick Jagger. <laughs> they wanted Mick Jagger. The they wanted Mick Jagger to play the part. <laughs> oh but Nick and, and the producer fought for me, and really? and I I got the role in the end, which was wonderful. And it's so memorable, and it seems to have a kind of 
increased your visibility as a baddie in that. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. But then after the bliffle we talked about, the ugly one, you know, I wasn't <laughs> going to get many romantic... I mean, I, well, I have played... No, I played with some... I played with Vanessa Redgrave, I made a film with Jane Fonda, I made... with, with But they always leave me. I'm always the <laughs> husband. The beautiful Ursula Andress oh, I did a yes. film with. Oh. I played her husband. She leaves me for some reason. <laughs> so, oh, but, dear. No, but it's terrible. <laughs> but, uh, so, Time Bandits is another film that is but Now, that wasn't remarkable. a romantic lead, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Did <you> see, <laughs> yes. Anybody seen Time Bandits? Oh, I have to ask, you know. I actually have a little story about Time Bandits. I was working doing specialized publicity at Avco Embassy at the time, and I'd heard that Terry Gilliam was making a film. And I told... The, my bosses at the studio about this film and I said we need to screen it because I think we should pick it up. They did screen it, they picked it up and it became their most successful movie ever. Oh, well, so, uh, yeah. uh, well there's another talking about Mick, them wanting Mick Jagger. Oh please. Uh, well no, for, for Time After Time. Yes. Well for, for Time Bandits, for my role, they wanted Jonathan Price, who was a great actor. Yeah. Oh but he my. wasn't available, so it came to me. Well, it's another, yes, it's another way. That's well, the way however you get them, they become your own. Let me tell you about Trump. Please. They wanted Peter O'Toole. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? No, so again, that's how it came my way. And it ended up being, these roles became iconic. They be, you were those roles. However you got them, they became yours in a way that I don't think would have worked nearly as well with someone else. Well, that's Certainly debatable. That's debatable. But I mean, uh, it it's, just, it's just the way the business works. That we're talking about three parts I got when right. other people... I mean, all the other act for Bliffle, because he wasn't a romantic lead, they lots of my contemporaries turned it down, so it came my way. Right. And, and time, you know, time after time. And then you got your romantic lead in Morgan, which was quite... Well, yes, sort of. Yes, sort but of, she yeah. goes off with somebody else, too. <laughs> well, do you approach things differently uh, doing comedy or drama or thrillers, or is it all Shakespeare? It, it's it all what? Is it all Shakespeare? How do you mean is it all I mean... It's it's acting. Well, it's instinct. Right. I have, as I said earlier, I have absolutely no method and no way. It's purely instinct. I, instinct and a good and a director who will tell me if I'm not doing it right. Right. Uh, and and that's that's basically it. Uh, I, I have absolutely no method whatsoever. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no method to the madness. Well, you have become uh, very involved in fantastical stories. Um, time after time, time bandits, I mean, really imaginative things. Um, and Star Trek became a big part of your life. Yes, indeed. Tell me how, how that came about. <sighs> I'm trying to think the first one, it was Star... Well, well, the first start was Star Trek Five. Five, yeah. Which, uh, it turns out, wasn't the best Star Trek, they tell me. <laughs> they tell, but you were good. <laughs> oh, I'm fine. No, actually, actually, I was on the, a lot of me was on the cutting room floor. Oh, dear. So uh, I had a couple of scenes and then ended up standing on the, you know, but it was great to be on the Enterprise yeah. and Shatner and Nimoy and, you know, and all that. No, so it was all part of, you know, before Patrick took over, you know, right, which right. Is, comes later. Yeah. No, so, I mean, for me, Star Trek V wasn't the best, but for me it was because I played a human being. Uh, yes. And there's Star Trek VI. Somehow I ended up in Star Trek VI playing another species, <laughs> which is a Klingon. Yes. Now, 
I don't know, they must have forgot, they're casting people, must have forgotten I was in five, because I don't know how I ended up in six. <laughs> I, I just don't, as a different character. They I didn't watch five. No, well, <laughs> well, they didn't watch five, but it was Nick Meyer, of course, did time after time. Yes. So maybe he lobbied for me or whatever, but it was wonderful to do that. And then, of course, The Next Generation. Right. I did one of those with Patrick. And I say Patrick, because... <laughs> His name's Patrick. I mean, it's Sir Patrick, of course. But like Malcolm McDowell, Patrick was also in the Hamlet I did years ago. And he did, I played Hamlet and he didn't. <laughs> Another victory. Another victory against, against stars. So uh, no, he played the player king, a wonderful part. But, but um, I was playing Hamlet, love, you know. But um, it, it's so wonderful because Patrick was, a, was wonderful when he joined and played Hamlet and then he went on and he dedicated his life to Shakespeare practically mm. until Picard came along right. and now he's, he's one of the biggest out there Absolutely. and I'm so thrilled so having done in 63 or 64 with Patrick did the Hamlet and then ending up whenever we did the next generation and he was so big right. and I was there again working with him it was such a thrill for me Oh, how great to uh, full, come full circle. Yes, right yes, there. absolutely. I mean, uh, and uh, he, was, he was a star and I wasn't. You know, I played Hamlet and he didn't. Now he's a star and I'm not. Now he got yeah. even. And, uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm so well, thrilled for him. Are you drawn to the fantastical? Are you a no, particular no, fan? No, no, no. Whatever comes. John Hurt, the great actor John Hurt, who was in us, Alien, yeah. yeah um, he called himself, and I agree, a letterbox actor. A letterbox actor means the script comes through the letterbox, you pick it up, <laughs> And then you read it and you do it rather right. than... Now, there are some actors who plan their careers, like I think somebody like Kenneth Branagh. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he sort of really finessed in the best way because he's wonderful director, wonderful actor. But he kind of knew what he was going to do. And uh, some of us never know. Right. You, know, you don't plan it. Whatever comes in, you just... Um, well, I'm interested in the transition from working in the British film industry to suddenly becoming a, a major staple in Hollywood film and working for the studio system and network television and things like that. Did you find it different? Because the, the British system seems so much more independent and adventurous. Yeah, I think the, the, the British, English, British films were more intimate. You, you would get on with a producer, you'd have dinner, there wouldn't be a big, huge load of executives you know, like they have in, you'd be a, the film production company would be smaller. Right. So you knew everybody. More and nimble. It was, it was, it was, yes, yes, you could be, a, you could talk about the script and you could do stuff and, but what, once there's a big studio there, then if you want to change something or do something, you've got to go through a lot of people and you, you don't, it's not quite so free. The committee process. Yes. Yeah. So, so, but, uh, I, I got through it. It wasn't too much of a problem for me. Yeah. Do you, like uh, the bad guy is always the memorable one and uh, are you drawn to play no that? i mean I, no. I, I, no 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 i i you know people used to, kids especially say are you ever going to play a good guy you know oh. but it was just one of those things so it got a bit i didn't really enjoy it in the end yeah um, and yet you're still, I mean, your longevity is, is fantastic. Very few actors are lucky enough to have a career that continues for so many decades as it continues Well, now. I mean, when I think, when we think of the great actors out there, like Sir right. Ian McKellen and Patrick right. Stewart and, and, and um, 
you know, th those guys who are so driven. Right. I mean, they have to act. They can afford not to. You know, I <laughs> yes. think by now, Ian McKellen with Lord of the Rings and Patrick with all that. They can afford, but they're out there. I mean, they're out there doing theatre, doing film. They can't stop. I don't mind. I don't have to do it. I'm not driven like that. But you still are very active. Um, no, I haven't done anything for two years. Oh, really? The last thing was the most unlikely was Mary Poppins' return. Right. Which was, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Which only came out only a year or so. Ago, yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And I, the scarf here that you get a free. I, I didn't get paid much, but I got a scarf <laughs> with, with Mary Poppins' return. <laughs> 2017, I wear it at conventions. So. That's good. Just to, rem to remind myself my last job. No, I mean, I don't, yeah. I, you know, I fortunately, I, you know, I have a simple life and I don't, don't um, I'm not driven. Well, you mentioned the conventions. Tell me about the experience of coming face to face with your fans. Oh, I love, well, I love it. I've been very lucky. The, the one thing you said, I've done lots of different things. Right. For example, if you, um, I'm not being uh, negative about anybody, but if you've done a series like Game of Thrones and you go to a convention, you get a line like that. Absolutely. Uh, for that. I, now, I've been lucky and done quite a bit. So my table has got all different things on it. Yes. And, uh, and that's a thrill. So they don't come and talk to you just about the one, like, about Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, but they'll talk you know, like time after time, or The Omen, right. or, or Star Trek, or... Uh, Depends uh, on how grey they are. <laughs> how, how do you mean? Grey hair, oh, oh, yeah, by no, the but, age. No, but, you yeah. know, so they, I've been... I, it's not just the one thing. So right. I have an exciting time, because somebody will say, have you got Christmas Carol there? You know, yes. which I did with George C. Scott, and I, I played remember. Bob Cratchit, who's a very sympathetic character. Right. Or have you got something from Hornblower? which I did as well for a TV thing. So I've done enough that it's really, really interesting for me to do conventions. Is there one film that the fans focus mostly on? I think Tron, ah. they do. Uh -huh. uh, and, um, well, of course, it all depends which kind of convention. Not, there right. are different conventions. Right. Uh, the, the Omen, um, I bet. I bet. Uh, Star Trek. Well, it was interesting. A lot of people felt that The Omen owed its success to The Exorcist, which came a couple of years before. And yet, The Omen was done on a very tight budget, but beautifully Certainly done. Certainly by my salary, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the whole film only cost $2 million that at the I time. Know. Yeah. But Richard Donner, that was his ticket to Superman and, mm -hmm. and beyond all that. So tell me about that. This was still a British production, so you were primarily working in England, although it was a Warner England Brothers. and Europe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it was 20th Century Fox. Uh -huh. um, so uh, tell me about that experience of kind of an international co-production and this tight little budget, but a really dark... Well, well the point that you, although it's an American background, I mean, we were in, in Britain, Right. With British crews and the British way. and the, So it was, you felt as if you were in an English movie. Yeah. Um, the original title of The Omen, the script I got with my character was called Birthmark. Oh my. Gregory Peck in Birthmark. <laughs> I don't think that's quite the, the ring six, to six, it. 666, I you asked me what it was like? Uh, yeah, just the experience on working something. This was really dark. The film itself was well, quite dark. Well, the, the, the thing, I just uh, found the other day some, I don't collect much memorabilia. Yeah. I don't have one. But some photographs of uh, Gregory Peck and myself, because everybody gets killed off 
Yes. So Fred Gregory Peck and I are just left together, <laughs> travelling to Israel and Rome, and and everything. Well, someone some, loses his head. Uh, we, so, uh, yes. You sport it now. Oh. You, you give him a, <laughs> 1976. No, but I just found some photographs, you know, of in-between takes of Gregory Peck and myself. And in every single shot, there's only about five of them that that are left, Gregory Peck and I are laughing. Uh. Ah. Not necessarily because we're laughing at the film or something. Right, It's just we we got on so well, I'm so proud have worked with this great man. He was a great man. But all the fact, because Gregory Peck's, you think he's quite sort of somber, and you know, you think of him more... Stolid. So, like that. But every photograph, when he's just laughing about something so stupid. Sometimes it's about the stupid things in the film. Right, yes. You know, we've got to do a scene where we're covered in blood. Yes. You know, or something. And, and, and I do have one where he's got blood. There's a scene where dogs attack us. Right. And he get, his arm gets, they chew his arm and there's blood. So in between takes, there's him, you know, with blood there and looking at the camera, smiling, and I'm looking at him or whatever. And I put it on Facebook, actually. <laughs> oh, good. And I put and I said, two method actors prepare. <laughs> you know, nothing less method actory than, than, you know, Gregory Peck and myself and the Omen. And dog puppets. And dog puppets that didn't work. All that kind of stuff, yes. Now, were you there when uh, your head was lost? Did you How see... How could I be? <laughs> now, do you mean, did I watch that moment? Did you watch it? Your... Not really, no, I didn't watch it. Uh, no. There must be a picture of you holding on to your head somewhere. N- no. No, okay. No, somebody asked me in an interview, do I, do I, said, Mark said in an interview on television, he said, did you keep the head from the omen? Yes. And I said, no, I lost it in the divorce. Which <laughs> <laughs> got quite a laugh, thank you so much. <laughs> Excellent. So, which brings us to comedy. You know, uh, you you have done some very notable comedic stuff, and it um, must be kind of a pleasure as opposed to playing all the darker roles. Yeah, as I say, I don't really enjoy all the bread and butter, and, you know, you don't buy the hand that feeds you, but the the heavy roles just get to you sometimes. Uh, Man with Two Brains was... Oh, yeah, Steve Martin. I was quite... Again, one of those, if, I don't even saw Man with Two Brains, Steve Martin. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's Carl Reiner directed. Carl Reiner, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, I, I was really surprised to get the part. I, I met him. So I, so I phoned up Carl. I got Carl Reiner's number. I said, Mr. Reiner, thank you so much for giving me this part. He said, that's fine. You were the cheapest. <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, what about, you talked about being a Klingon, the experience of working under makeup. Well, yes, I mean, it takes three hours to put on. I mean, I've done it. I was a zombie in Michael Jackson's Thriller, and okay. I, I had three hours of makeup on Yeah, but well. then did you have dialogue? Uh, no, no, I exactly. did not, yes. No. <laughs> I just emerged from a no, grave. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, again, uh, what, the question really is what? I mean, How is that experience? That, uh, a lot of people, once they have the makeup on, it totally changes their performance. They, no, they, no, they I, no. I mean, you yeah, feel yeah, every pound of the latex. Well, yeah, well they really improved the, the, the makeup. I mean, I did the, the um, Gorkon in, in six was a three-hour makeup, you know, mm. with that. 
Uh, but it didn't change the... I didn't know. I, 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 and you weren't claustrophobic about it or anything? No, 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 no. Mm. Because, uh, no. Um, and then I, did, I was in Cardassian with Patrick in, in, in that one. And I was in. I did two days on Planet of the Apes ah, under, okay. underneath an ape one. You know. <laughs> okay. So you know. And so you're fine with that. I'm fine with it, but yeah. it it didn't really. I mean, I suppose the makeup makes the character. Right. But I'm not aware of that. I just try and remember the lines underneath it. You know. You've done so much work in feature films, big budget, independent, all over the place, as well as television. Do you feel the differences between media? Between, t uh, Between television and film? Oh, well, I, I think TV <coughs> has become so quick now. Mm. You don't get any rehearsal. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to know it all. You know, uh, with, I suppose it's just, it's, television is quicker. Right. Film, you feel you get a longer time. And yet television has become more deeply dramatic and, and films have become more, you know, comic book movies. And yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it appears that the, the superior work now is on television. Yeah, in the in the main. Do you yeah. still see a difference between production in the UK and in the US? Well, I haven't worked in the US for quite, for twenty five years, mm. so I really, you know, and I've done only done a little work in the last few years, so I don't notice anything particularly. What are the things that you are really excited to have done that were maybe opportunities that were different? Well, I. I'm excited in, in some films are really not easy to do physically mm -hmm. and you think oh my god I can't wait for it to be over and then years later you think I'm so glad I did it for example I mean one area we haven't touched was the great Sam Peckinpah right for me I don't know how many people you I, see I, time goes by and not everybody knows names that I might mention right. Sam Peckinpah was just Come on, you've all. He was an iconic. Before? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, forgive me. I'm not being patronising. But I, and film is forever. The know? film is forever. But I have. Uh, well, let me just say why I'm not. Uh, I'm not being patronised. But why I say this is, I met in in England. Um, uh, students who just graduated from director film school, mm -hmm. and they've never heard of Sam Peckinpah, oh, and they've never heard of Sidney Lumet, oh, and my. they've hardly heard of Orson Welles. Of course, they've heard of of, of uh, Spielberg, yeah, and, and, and Scorsese. But so you never know, you know how, how people know. But We're assuming our audience is savvy. Uh, all right, <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> I can't see you anyway because of the lights. <laughs> um, no, sir. Um, no, but so, my, so, so proud to have been part of Sam Peckinpah's. I did three films for him. That's amazing. And, and he had a reputation of being this and that and the other. Yes, he did. But for me, he was nothing but a true friend and somebody who helped me through some rough times. Really? And, and uh, yeah, and um, was there for me. Well, tell me about that, that experience of, of a relationship with a director or other actors that you work with or people. Um, you know, for me, there are a handful of actors I've worked with many, many times, and, and the shorthand is there, and you work together, and it, it just makes for a so much more pleasurable experience. So I'd love to hear from an actor's perspective in that regard. What, what, what about Peckinpah? About Peckinpah or other directors you've had multiple experiences Well, I haven't worked a lot. I mean, Peckinpah is the one I work with most. Most, right, three I times. I mean, I've worked with a couple of, but not in big major 
films. Right. Well, so I know. I mean, you just. I mean, it's a trust. I mean, right. uh, if somebody, I did the, a film called *The Ballad of Cable Ho*, right. which was Sam Peckinpah's gentlest. It was almost <laughs> a musical comedy, uh, which immediately followed *The Wild Bunch*. Right, which was at the time uh, the exactly, most brutal film. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, he, while we were shooting Cable Hogue in the desert in Nevada, mm. uh, in the laundromat of the hotel, at night, after we'd filmed Cable in the day, he was still editing The Wild Bunch. The Wild Bunch hadn't come out. Wow. And I remember he actually did, and I don't bullshit people, and he actually said to me one night, he said, David, he said, I'm having very, if you saw The Wild Bunch, the last yeah. reel, the last fight goes on forever. Yeah, it was groundbreaking, yeah. yeah. And he said, I'm working on this, I can't finish the picture. He said, but the one thing I know, I have made my statement on violence. And that's mm. what he said to me. While we were making this lyrical, yes, musical <laughs> thing. So to me, here was a man who I, I didn't, whose work I didn't really know until I saw a rough cut five hours of the wild bunch which was phenomenal but yes. of course it, the, the finished film isn't five hours this is a man who's doing his statement on violence mm -hmm. and now for his next act he's doing a nice gentle a delightful, delightful little whimsical piece of lovely lovely piece yeah so i thought well this is fantastic the man who can do those two absolutely that, well, of that course, was 1969 i guess at yeah, the time yes. when you were shooting. well the point is of course Cable Hogue came out, and it wasn't Wild Bunch 2. No, it wasn't. So Warner Brothers, or whoever it was, didn't really push it. Mm. It just wasn't. So it disappeared totally. And his name became synonymous with violence. With violence. Sam Beckham, well, master of violence. Right. So, you know, and that was really distressing, I think, for Sam. So the next one I did for him was Straw Dogs. Which, so, back which to was, violence. <laughs> which was quite a violent film. That's an amazing film. Yeah. It's, it's striking, it's brutal, and Dustin Hoffman is amazing in yeah. it, and yeah. you are a baddie, but it's... Well, I'm not. It's a complex I, bad. He's not a baddie. He's not okay. well, and he, does, he kills the girl by accident. Okay. Am I spoiling it for you if you don't? <laughs> you should no, see no, it regardless. He's, he's trying that to, doesn't no, matter. he's trying yeah. to... This is what they call the simple man. Yes. He tries to protect her, and right. he's so strong. He's sort of he's, like Lenny in Of My Son Men. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not the villain. So, yeah, he's... He's the villain to the villagers. His intentions are good. That's right. But, yeah. I mean, he may be the villain to the other villagers who, who right. come to get him, right. but to the audience, he shouldn't be the villain. Right. In, okay. in a way, it's like Frankenstein's monster. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the torches and all, and yeah. he means yeah. well. He didn't yeah. mean to throw the girl in so, the river. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> And then Cross of Iron, which was a, um, a war picture. War, yeah. Um, you know, again, uh, to be part of it and working with the great James Mason. Right. And, um, you know, so I, I look back, and, you know, when I look back, which I do often now because I don't work much, <laughs> uh, the people like Gregory Peck and yeah. the people like Peck and Paul, all those wonderful people I've had the opportunities to. Because don't forget, I used to go to the cinema when I was 16. Sure. I saw Gregory Peck on the screen, huge, to, to actually end up, you know, having dinner with him every night. And to, yes. It's just 
you know. Well, and he brought such gravitas oh, yeah. to a genre film oh, that yes. would not have been as respectable. Absolutely. Yeah, he Absolutely. and Lee Remick and you Lee, really yeah. made this into something more the than great the great Lee Remick. She was wonderful too. Yeah, yeah, she was fantastic. So, what are the films or television shows that give you pleasure? What do you What do you like to watch? I don't go to the cinema much. Yeah. I'm a bit deaf now, so I can't hear anything. Mm. So I wait until they come up so I can get subtitles. I see. So, so, what do I, I don't, I don't really watch much. Yeah. Cinema. And are there, are there actors that, uh, that you love to watch? There are a couple. I mean, I, I, there are many. I call them uh, people who never let me down. Ah. Uh, for example, I, so it's not like sort of, great big stars or whatever, but mm -hmm. I know, I always knew that Philip Seymour Hoffman would mm. never let me down. Yeah. I don't know if anybody agrees with that. Oh, uh, he was so fantastic. Everything I saw him do, I just knew I would get involved with. A brilliant actor. Yeah. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Oh, yes. Is, I, I happen to just, I don't know the, I never met them. Mm -hmm. he'll, he'll, he never lets me down. He'll yeah. always do something that really engages me. Right. Um, in England, a young actor called Ben Wishaw. Oh, he's uh, fantastic. He's, yeah. he's lovely. I mean, he was he in perfume. He just doesn't let me yeah. down. Yeah. Character, character leading actor Jim Broadbent. Oh, he, he never yeah. lets me down. I mean, I could mention names you never heard of or whatever. They're all so. Yeah. So it's, it's not like sort of Tom Cruise or, or somebody like that. It's right, just but more people who are interesting, you know, you, unique. Well, I'm, I can't say that would be rude for me to say Tom Cruise isn't interesting. No, but, but I, they're unique personas. Yeah, yes, to there's something about them yeah. that I know that warms me and, and just makes me get, engages me. Well, I've, I've got a two-sided question about your observations of your own work. First, what were the jobs that were the ones that were the most enjoyable experience to actually do during production? And then on the other side, what were the ones that you're the most proud of today that you see? Because sometimes a great performance can come out of a very troubled production. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, well, Films I've enjoyed usually don't turn out well. <laughs> I don't mean just because people are messing. I don't mean people are messing about not taking it seriously. Of course. I mean, I did a film uh, of Chekhov's Seagull, which uh, yeah. Sidney Lumet directed, mm. with Vanessa Redgrave and James Mason and all sorts of people. And it was just a lovely, lovely... But the film just didn't turn out okay. Mm. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. I mean, well, just maybe to put it as uh, the films that you would most like an audience to have seen that you've done. Well, I suppose something like Cable Hope, which, yeah. I mean, time after time, I'm very yeah. glad I did. Yeah. I mean, Cable Hope was actually, for me personally, not a very pleasant experience, not because of any people, right. but as an Englishman, I was stuck in the desert. Right. And it's a total. <laughs> Total culture, it was a culture isn't the word, it was just a shock. And <laughs> no culture. And, and, and no, no TV, because oh. they couldn't get the reception, oh. bearing it's 1969 or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, um, and so long day, long weeks without working, mm. and I couldn't drive, so I couldn't hire a car, so I was stuck. And yet the film is something I will never forget being part of in the yeah, end, yeah. but I had a terrible time doing it, so I never dreamed that it would become a, a wonderful memory, but right. somehow all the rough, bad stuff, because Jason Robas was so wonderful. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and Stella and, and, and Stevens and you know. the great, yeah, the you gorgeous know. So, Stella so, Stevens. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the, the, perhaps then the question, another question would be, what are the roles that you would most like to be thought of? Oh Lord, I you know that's a really difficult one because yeah. I'm also. Oh, you've I'm, got page after page of credits. I, yes, and I, I suppose I'm just so surprised. Mm. I mean, I, I sometimes. And it's true, I'm, I'm, you know, I wouldn't miss you. I have, on the first day of shooting, I've sometimes said, are you sure it's me that you want? <laughs> you know, are, are you absolutely sure you made the right decision? And often, when I saw a director after a week's shooting talk to the producer or somebody, I'm convinced they wanted to replace me. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those things. I'm not a very, what's the word? Um, I'm quite insecure. Uh, and I always okay. was. And but yet, the, have you ever been replaced? A couple of times, but I'm not going to tell you, because you won't oh, know what they are. No, so we right. won't. We'll, we'll keep your secret. No, 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 no. Have I, you, no, have I you. have, but I can't quite remember. Oh, okay, we'll put it like that. <laughs> nothing, nothing major, nothing, you know. Um, so have you never wanted to write or direct yourself? I, I, I'm, uh, I can't write. Mm. I'd love to be able to. Right. Uh, open a little thought for me here. Sometimes I'm asked, you know, you just ask me what actors I admire or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and sometimes people say, are you jealous of other people's careers and all that I kind of stuff? Well, that. you, you could yes. be, one could yeah. be. And the thing, I, I'm, for example, you know, contemporaries like Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart, they're contemporaries all around the same age. And I am, fortunately, I am blessed that I'm not jealous of their success. Or, or their fame, or their money, or whatever. Somehow, because I'm so lucky to have been doing what I've been doing, it would be silly of me to be, you know, too sure. envious and too. But what I do envy about some of my contemporaries, I miss Tony Hopkins, of course, in, in yes. that group. Tony is a musician, and a composer, mm -hmm. and a painter. That's what I envy, uh. you know? And so, you know, a lot of my contemporaries write and can, you know, or paint or, or play, play instruments, which I can't do. I have no culture in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm an actor and that's it, but I don't... That's a pretty big deal. Not having culture in your life is a pretty big deal. <laughs> well, I mean, being an actor is a pretty big deal. Oh, yes, big no, deal. no, that's yes. That's quite I an mean, For me, it's yes. a big deal because yes. it got me out of not being a criminal or something <laughs> or, or whatever. Yes. So, but I'm just saying about the, the, the jealousy, envy thing. Right, absolutely. That's what I do yeah. is when my contemporaries have Johnny Hurt is a painter. Wow. Pierce Brosnan paints. Yes. You yeah. know, um, that's, what I, that's what I envy. I just don't do those. So I don't write. That came out of you asking about writing and directing. Absolutely. And I, I would make a terrible director because I'd stop the actor every minute and say, no, say it that way. Do it. No, <laughs> I don't think I'd be a very good director. <laughs> and the actors certainly would they, not they, appreciate that. They wouldn't like that, that at all. Yeah. How do you like to work with a director? Do you like uh, inspiration? Do you like him to keep his distance until it's you right, need a If he a doesn't correction? say anything, I know I'm doing my job. There because once you're cast, that's, that's what, 95% of it. Right. Learning the lines is, is the rest of it. So if the director doesn't say anything except for cut, let's move on, that's bliss, really. I mean, yes. I know a lot of actors say, you'd love to have a director say, darling, you're wonderful. You're <laughs> All that. That doesn't, it does not quite, I don't need that. If there's silence there, cut, move on. Cindy Lumet was like that. Mm. Cut. Next setup. 
and you know that you're fine. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. Yeah. Uh, is there any role or character or type of personality that you have not played that you wished you Well, I could? suppose at one stage, after Bliffle in Tom Jones, I wanted to play the rom a real romantic lead. Yeah. I'd like to have, you know, back then done a bit of action, mm. you know, stuff and all that. Right. Um, but um, you know, I, I, I can't. I have no complaints about what I've done. Well, the versatility, the range of your work is is remarkable, and the ability to have done this decade after decade after decade and always bring something new to it. I don't. Well, thank you for that. I mean, again, I'm not being falsely modest, but no, no. I can't look at myself. No. I find it very difficult. I'm totally self-critical of myself. <laughs> you know, and I can't. It, it's 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 difficult for me to to actually believe sometimes when people say, you know, you were rather good in that. And I, I yeah. just, I have that feeling, of, no, no, I just, no. You know. <laughs> and also, but also, uh, when I occasionally see something I've been in, I sometimes say, that's rather good, but this can't be me. It's a very strange feeling. Is there one thing that gives you the sin of pride to indulge in? One, one Having more? been asked by a director or a company to work for them again, Right. That's... Uh, every job offer is an affirmation. Uh, yes, and, and also for me, every job has been on an audition for the next one. Ah. I mean, um, there was a time when I did have a, a, lo a load of jobs lined up one after the other, but that was only a couple of years. Mm. And then I suddenly found that, that I was auditioning for a next job the next by, by just doing it. Well, I just want to thank you so much for sharing so finished? much with us. Yes, oh. I, I'm happy to talk <laughs> more if you like. We can take a couple questions from the audience. A couple, that like. would be great. That I know, I know, just getting late, but I mean, it's yes. fine. For me, it's getting late because I'm old. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. let's take two or three questions from the audience. Do we have someone who has it right in the second row here? So you had that musical number in Freakazoid. Do you enjoy roles where you get to sing? I I'm going to repeat I'm... that. Yes, um, yes, yes. Because she's not mic'd, but you had a musical number in Freakazoid. Yes, Freakazoid, my favorite uh, animated cartoon. Thank you for the question. Lovely to see you again. Um, <laughs> yeah, Freakazoid. Um, uh, was, and I played a character, if anybody's ever heard it, apart from you. Of course. Uh, I don't know, I don't yeah. know. Yes. Because we don't have it in England. Ah, I see. I uh, played a character called The Lobe, and they did a four-minute send-up of Hello, Dolly, <laughs> with a kind of, you, you've got the Streisand thing coming down the steps, so they right. had my character coming down the steps, The Lobe, singing Hello, Lobe, <laughs> you know, and I had no singing voice. Um, especially if you see Mary Poppins Returns, okay. you know. No, I don't sing in that. No, so it was a wonderful experience to just be doing and be part. But I love doing the Loeb in Freakazoid. That's one of my favorite jobs of all time. How about animation? Do you enjoy doing voiceover? Well, yes, but you'd, of course you just do the voice. You don't right. do it to the animation and it happens later. Right, they animate to uh, what you did. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And of course, I don't have the cartoon channel, so I don't really see them. But they're joy to do. Oh, I that's love doing great. them. Thank Another question. question. Uh, oh, over here. Okay. If you could write, if you could write the story of your life, what, how would it start? What would be the first sentence? The if first you could, sentence. If you could write the story of yes, your life. Yes, the first sentence. Yes, I've, I've spent the first 75 years not understanding a word 
anybody's been talking about. <laughs> I've had that one, thank you for the question, it's like a plant, I've had that one planned, that line, if I ever did write my autobiography, that would be my opening line. <laughs> thank you for the question, it's fantastic. Good, Mike. One last one, and then we'll wrap it up. How difficult was it uh, during the production of Tron where everything was created in post-production? You were just working against green screens and black screens. Well, it was a, a, a sort of non-acting exercise, really. <laughs> it was like mime and... I didn't understand a word of Tron <laughs> when we were doing it, and I still don't know... If, I haven't watched it recently, but I still don't understand it. So it was a question, it was, that was really a question of of being like a chess piece, hmm. but a winning chess piece, not frustrating, because we knew it was different. We didn't know it was going to be what it became. It was completely new. It yeah. Completely new, in a, almost a, you know, a black room with, with, uh, and wearing silly tights and silly... <laughs> I mean, my Helmets costume was yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you came back for more. Came, how do you mean? The, the reboot of Tron? No, didn't, didn't they use your voice in it? I don't know. I, I never saw did. it. The second I think one. they did for a couple The first of one was bad enough. I didn't want to see the second <laughs> one. No. No, but I mean, it, was, uh, it wasn't easy because we didn't quite know what it was going to look like or what it was. We just did what the director told us uh, because we trusted what he was doing. Right. And um, that's really the only way I can answer it. Yeah. Well, David, thank you for sharing so much of your life ah. with us. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, my dear. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.